Welcome to the narrated Puritan portion of the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. A new episode of the narrated Puritan is deposited on Wednesdays. In July of 1800, a magazine was commenced. Its general editor was a man named Nathan Strong. Under the title of the plan of work at the beginning of the very first volume of the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine, it says, This magazine is to contain essays on the doctrines of Christianity and on religious, experimental, and moral subjects. Expositions of difficult and doubtful passages of scripture, religious intelligence concerning the state of Christ's kingdom throughout the Christian world, and sketches of the original ecclesiastical concerns of this country, information respecting missions to the new settlements in the United States and among the heathen nations, and narratives of revivals of religion in particular places, altogether with the distinguishing marks of true and false religion. Accounts of remarkable dispensations of divine providence, biographical sketches of persons eminent for piety, and so on. In my hand, I have the 1802 edition, and it contains a letter from Archibald Alexander, who was the original professor of theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. In fact, the first year in 1812, he taught all of the classes. But at this time, he is a very young man, but the president of Hampton Sydney College in Virginia. Mr. Alexander, it says, is a gentleman of eminent science and judicious piety, and by his late tour through New England, became known and beloved by many of our Christian readers. This letter is dated January 25th, 1802, from Prince Edward, Virginia. It is written to Nathan Strong, the editor of the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine. This letter is a story of the Kentucky Revival, which started in the year 1800. And because it is coming from such a reliable source, I think it is worth paying attention to because we have so many naysayers in our day who don't even believe in the subject of revival or that there was any such thing. Least of all, do they suppose we should make any ado about it? And with that, I'll commence. Reverend and dear sir, I've deferred writing until this time, that I might have it in my power to communicate some authentic intelligence of the extraordinary revival of religion which has lately taken place in Kentucky. The enclosed letter was written to me by the president of Washington Academy in this state, who visited Kentucky for the very purpose of examining to the nature of the remarkable religious appearances which existed there. In this inquiry, he obtained complete satisfaction and now entertains no doubt of its being a glorious work of God, as you'll see by the contents of his letter. I scarcely know a man on whose judgment in a manner of this kind I could more confidently rely than upon his. Possessing a clear, discriminating mind and rational piety, he was in as little danger of being deceived by delusive appearances as any other person with whom I am acquainted. You will, however, judge of the narrative for yourself, and may make use of it how you think proper. I have sent it with a view to its publication in the Evangelical Magazine, that's the Connecticut Evangelical Magazine, if the editor think it would be useful to the public. In North Carolina, a revival attended with similar appearances has lately taken place chiefly among the Presbyterians. I am not able to furnish you with the names of the counties or congregations, but I am informed it has extended over a tract of country about 20 miles square. And now the letter that was written to Archibald Alexander, Washington Academy, January 1st, 
1802. Reverend and dear sir, I now sit down agreeably to my promise to give you some account of the late revival of religion in the state of Kentucky. You have no doubt been informed already respecting the Green River and Cumberland revivals. I will just observe that the last is the fourth summer since the revival commenced in those places, and that it has been more remarkable than any of the preceding, not only for lively and fervent devotions among Christians, but also for awakenings and conversions among the careless. And it is worthy of notice the very few instances of apostasy have appeared. As I was not in the Cumberland country myself, all I can say about it depends on the testimony of others. But I was uniformly told by those who had been there that their religious assemblies were more solemn and the appearance of the work much greater than what had been in Kentucky. Any enthusiastic symptoms which might at first have attended the revival were greatly subsided, whilst the serious concern and engagedness of the people were visibly increased. In the older settlement of Kentucky, the revival made its first appearance among the presbyteries last spring. The whole of that country about a year before was remarkable for vice and dissipation, and I have been credibly informed that a decided majority of the people were professed infidels. During the last winter, appearances were favorable among the Baptists, and great numbers were added to their churches. Early in the spring, the ministrations of the Presbyterian clergy began to be better attended than they had been for many years before. Their worshiping assemblies became more solemn, and the people, after they were dismissed, showed a strange reluctance about leaving the place. They generally continued some time in the meeting houses and employed themselves in singing or religious conversation. Perhaps about the last of May or the first of June, the awakenings became general in some congregations and spread through the country in every direction with amazing rapidity. I left that country about the first of November, at which time this revival, in connection with the one on Cumberland, had covered the whole state of Kentucky, except in a small settlement which borders on the waters of Green River, in which no Presbyterian ministers are settled, and I believe very few of any denominations. The power with which this revival has spread, and its influence in moralizing the people, are difficult for you to conceive, and more so for me to describe. I had heard many accounts and seen many letters respecting it before I went to that country, but my expectations so greatly raised were much below the reality of the work. There, congregations, when engaged in worship, presented scenes of solemnity superior to what I had ever seen before. And in private houses, it was no uncommon thing to hear parents relate to strangers the wonderful things which God had done in their neighborhoods, while a large family of young people collected round them would be in tears. On my way to Kentucky, I was informed by settlers on the road that the character of Kentucky travelers was entirely changed, and that they were now as remarkable for sobriety as they had been formerly for dissoluteness and immorality. And indeed, I found Kentucky, to appearance, the most moral place I had ever seen. A profane expression was hardly ever heard. A religious awe seemed to pervade the country. And some deistical characters had confessed that from whatever cause a revival might proceed, 
it did make the people better. Its influence was not less visible in promoting a friendly temper among the people. Nothing could appear more amicable than that undissembled benevolence which governs the subjects of this work. I have often wished that the mere politician or the deist could observe with impartiality their peaceful and amicable spirit. He would certainly see that nothing could equal the religion of Jesus for promoting the temporal happiness of society. Some neighborhoods visited by the revival were formerly notorious for private animosities and contentions, and many petty lawsuits had commenced on that ground. When the parties in these quarrels were impressed with religion, the first thing was to send for their antagonists, and it was often very affecting to see their meeting. They had both seen their faults and both contended. They ought to make the acknowledgments till at last they were obliged to request one another to forbear all mention of the past and to receive each other as friends and brothers for the future. Now, sir... Let modern philosophists talk of reforming the world by banishing Christianity and introducing their licentious systems. The blessed gospel of our God and Savior is showing what it can do. Some circumstances have concurred to distinguish a revival in Kentucky from almost any other of which we have had any account. I mean the largeness of their assemblies on sacramental occasions. The length of time they continued on the ground in the exercise of public or private devotion, and the great numbers who have fallen down under religious conviction. On each of these particulars, I shall give you some remarks. With respect to the largeness of their assemblies, it is generally supposed that as many places, there were not less than eight, ten, or twelve thousand people. At one place called Cane Ridge Meeting House, many are of opinion there were not less than 20,000. There were 140 wagons which came loaded with people besides other wheel carriages. And some persons attended who had come the distance of 200 miles. The largeness of these congregations was a considerable inconvenience. They were too numerous to be addressed by any one speaker. Different ministers were obliged to officiate at the same time at different stands. This afforded an opportunity to those who were but slightly impressed with religion to wander backwards or forwards between the different places of worship, which created an appearance of confusion and gave ground to such as were unfriendly to the work to charge it with disorder. There was also another cause which conduced to the same effect. About this time, the people began to fall down in great numbers under serious convictions. This is a new thing among Presbyterians. It excited universal astonishment and created a degree of curiosity which could not be restrained. When people fell down, even in the most solemn parts of divine service, those who stood near were so extremely anxious to see how they were affected that they frequently crowded about them in such a manner as to disturb the worship. But these causes of disorder were soon removed. Different sacraments were appointed on the same Sabbath, which divided the people, and the falling down soon became so familiar as to excite no disturbance. I was in that country during the month of October. I attended three sacraments. The number of people at each was supposed to be about four or five thousand, and everything was conducted with strict propriety. 
When persons fell down, those who happened to be near took care of them, and everything continued quiet until the worship was concluded. The length of time the people continued on the ground was another important circumstance of the Kentucky Revival. At Cane Ridge, the people met on Friday morning and continued until Wednesday evening, night and day, without intermission, either in the public or private exercises of devotion, and with such a degree of earnestness that heavy showers of rain were not sufficient to disperse them. On another sacramental occasion, they generally continued on the ground until Monday or Tuesday evening, and had not the minister been exhausted and obliged to retire, or had they chosen to prolong the worship, they might have kept the people any length of time they pleased. And all this was, or might have been done, in a country where not twelve months before the clergy found it a difficult manner to detain the people during the common exercises of the Sabbath. The practice of camping on the ground was introduced partly by necessity and partly by inclination. The assemblies were generally too large to be received by any common neighborhood. Everything indeed was done which hospitality and brotherly kindness could do to accommodate the people. Public and private houses were both opened, and free invitations given to all persons who wished to retire. Farmers gave up their meadows before they were mown to supply the horses. But, notwithstanding all this liberality, it would in many cases have been impossible to have accommodated the whole assembly with private lodgings. But besides, the people were unwilling to allow any interruption in their devotion, and they formed an attachment for the place, where they were continually seeing so many careless sinners receiving the first impressions or convictions, and so many deists constrained to call on the formerly despised name of Jesus. They conceived a sentiment like what Jacob felt at Bethel when he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The number of persons who have fallen down under serious convictions in this revival is another matter worthy of attention, and on this I shall be the more particular, as it seems to be the principal cause why this work should be more suspected of enthusiasm than some other revivals. At Cane Ridge, Sacrament, the place mentioned above, it is generally supposed that not less than 1,000 persons fell prostrate to the ground, and among them were many infidels. At one sacrament which I attended in that country, the number that fell was thought to be upwards of 300. Persons who fall are generally such as have manifested symptoms of the deepest impressions for some time previous to that event. It is common to see them shed tears plentifully for about an hour. Immediately before they become totally powerless, they are seized with a general tremor, and sometimes, though not frequently, in the moment of falling, they utter one or two piercing shrieks. Persons in this state are affected in many different degrees. Sometimes, when unable to stand or sit, they have the use of their hands and converse with perfect composure. In other cases, they are unable to speak, their pulse grows weak, and they draw a hard breath about once a minute. And in some instances, their hands and feet become cold, and their pulse and breath and all the symptoms of life forsake them for nearly an hour. Persons who have been in this situation have uniformly avowed that they 
suffered no bodily pain, and that they had the entire command of their reason and reflection. And when recovered, they could relate everything which was said or done near them, or which could possibly fall within their observation. From this it appears that their falling is neither the common fainting nor the nervous affection. Indeed, this strange phenomenon appears to have taken every turn it possibly could to baffle the conjectures of those who are not willing to consider it a supernatural work. Persons have sometimes fallen on their way home from public worship and sometimes after their arrival. In some cases they have fallen when pursuing their common business on their farms, or when they had retired for private devotion. I observed above that persons generally are seriously affected for some time previous to falling. In many cases, however, it is otherwise. Numbers of careless persons have fallen as suddenly as if struck with a flash of lightning. Many professed infidels and other vicious characters have been arrested in this way, and sometimes at the very moment when they were uttering their blasphemies against the work. At the beginning of the revival in Shelby County, the appearances as related to me by eyewitnesses were very surprising indeed. The revival had previously spread with irresistible power through the adjacent counties, and many of the religious people had attended distant sacraments and were greatly benefited. They were much engaged and felt unusual freedom in their addresses at the throne of grace for the outpouring of the divine spirit to the approaching sacrament in Shelby. The sacrament came on in September. The people, as usual, met on Friday, but they were all languid, and the exercises went on heavily. On Saturday and Sunday morning, it was no better. But at length, the communion service commenced, and everything was still lifeless. The minister of the place was speaking at one of the tables without any unusual liberty. All at once there were several shrieks from different parts of the assembly. Persons fell instantly in every direction. The feelings of the pious were suddenly revived and the work went on with extraordinary power from that time till the conclusion of the solemnity. These phenomena of falling are common to all ages and sexes and to all sorts of characters, and when they fall they are differently exercised. Some pious people have fallen under a sense of ingratitude and hardness of heart, and others under affecting manifestations of the love and goodness of God. Many careless persons have fallen under legal convictions and obtained comfort before they arose, but perhaps the most numerous class of all are those who fall under distressing views of their guilt who arise with the same fearful apprehensions and continue in that state for some days, perhaps weeks, before they obtain comfort. I have conversed with many who fell under the influence of comfortable feelings, and the account which they gave of their exercises while they lay in trance was very surprising. I don't know how to give you a better idea of them than by saying that they appeared in many cases to surpass the dying exercises of Dr. Samuel Finley. Their minds appeared wholly swallowed up in contemplating the perfections of deity as illustrated in the plan of salvation. And while they lay in all appearance senseless and almost destitute of life, their minds were more vigorous and active and their memories more retentive and accurate than they had ever been before. 
I have heard respectable characters assert that their manifestations of gospel truth were so clear as to require some caution when they began to speak, lest they should use language which might induce their hearers to suppose they had seen those things with their natural eyes. But at the same time, they had seen no image or sensible representation, nor indeed anything besides the old truths contained in the Bible. Among those whose minds were filled with the most delightful communications of divine love, I but seldom observed anything ecstatic. Their expressions were just and rational. They conversed with calmness and composure. And on first recovering the use of their speech, they appeared like persons just recovering from a violent sickness which had left them on the borders of the grave. I have sometimes been present when persons who fell under the influence of convictions obtained relief before they rose. On these occasions, it was impossible not to observe how strongly the change of their minds was depicted in their countenances. From a face of horror and despair, they assumed one which was open, luminous, and serene, and expressive of all the comfortable feelings of religion. As to those who fall down under legal convictions and continue in that state, they are not different from those who receive convictions and other revivals, excepting that their distress is more severe. Indeed, extraordinary power is the leading characteristic of this revival. Both saints and sinners have more striking discoveries of the realities of another world than I have ever known on any other occasion. I trust I have said enough on the subject to enable you to judge how far the charge of enthusiasm is applicable to it. Lord Littleton, in his letter on the conversion of Paul observes, and I think very justly, that, quote, enthusiasm is a vain self-righteous spirit swelled with self-sufficiency and disposed to glory in its religious attainments, end quote. If this definition be a good one, there is perhaps as little enthusiasm in Kentucky as in any other revival. Never in my life have I seen more genuine marks of that humility, which disclaims the merit of its own duties, and looks to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way of acceptance with God. I was indeed highly pleased to find that Christ was all and in all in their religion, as well as in the religion of the gospel. Christians in their highest attainments were most sensible of their entire dependence on divine grace, and it was truly affecting to hear with what agonizing anxiety awakened sinners inquired for Christ as the only physician who could give them any help. Those who call these things enthusiasm ought to tell us what they understand by the spirit of Christianity. In fact, sir, this revival operates as our Savior promised the Holy Spirit should when sent into the world. It convinces of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. A strong confirmation to my mind both that the promise is divine and that this is a remarkable fulfillment of it. It would be of little avail to object to all this that perhaps the professions of many of the people were counterfeited. Such an objection would rather establish what it meant to destroy. For where there is no reality, there can be no counterfeit. And besides, when the general tenor of a work is such as to dispose the most insincere professors to counterfeit what is right, the work itself must be genuine. 
But as an eyewitness in the case, I may be permitted to declare that the professions of those under religious convictions were generally marked with such a degree of engagedness and feeling as willful hypocrisy could hardly assume. The language of the heart, when deeply impressed, is easily distinguished from the language of affectation. Upon the whole, sir, I think the revival in Kentucky among the most extraordinary that have ever visited the Church of Christ. In all things considered, it was peculiarly adapted to the circumstances of the country into which it came. Infidelity was triumphant, and religion at the point of expiring. Something of an extraordinary nature appeared necessary to arrest the attention of a giddy people, who were ready to conclude that Christianity was a fable and futurity a dream. This revival has done it. It has confounded infidelity, odd vice into silence, and brought numbers beyond calculation under serious conviction. Whilst the blessed Savior was calling home his people and building up of his church in this remarkable way, opposition could not be silent. At this I have hinted above. But it is proper I should observe here that the clamorous opposition which assailed the work at its first appearance has been in a great measure borne down before it. A large proportion of those who have fallen were at first opposers to it, and their example has taught others to be cautious if it has not taught them to be wise. I have written on this subject to a greater length than I first intended, but if this account should give you any satisfaction and be of any benefit to the common cause, I shall be fully gratified. Yours with the highest esteem, George Baxter.